Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm a spy doing whatever it is that spies do. But wait, what's that noise? It's Blofeld Schoons. Here, try on this lipstick that is also a gas grenade. It's a stunning colour. Now I'm in a tank of piranhas wearing my clever duck disguise. And look, there are the documents that I'm here to steal. One of Blofeld's goons appears to have followed me into my getaway car. It's a good thing Q installed an ejector seat. Another battle for world supremacy won by yours truly. And if this story seems a bit garbled, it's because I'm perhaps on my 18th one of these. Martini, please. Shaken, not stirred. Hello, welcome once again to Patented. It's a podcast about the history of inventions brought to you by History Hit. I'm your host, Dallas Campbell. Guess what? It's been 70 years this month since the first James Bond book, Casino Royale, by Ian Fleming was published. So my producers and myself thought we should do something to celebrate. Why? What on earth does Bond have to do with the history of inventions? Well, this podcast is ultimately all about stuff, the stuff that makes up the modern world, whether that's trains or Tabasco or Tupperware or tanks or whatever. And no cultural icon is more defined by his stuff than James Bond. You take away Bond's gadgets, his cars, his cocktails... And what have you got left? Just a sad man (laughs) called James. And also we wanted to do this because the idea of being a spy is, well, it's pretty cool. So welcome to our Inventing Bond miniseries. For the next few weeks, we are going to bring you the inventions that made Bond James Bond. We'll have episodes about spy gadgets and cocktails, Bond cars and wiretaps. But first, let's get back to basics. In the books and the films, the mastermind behind the explosive pens and invisible cars and what have you is the mysterious character known as Q. And as Fleming often based his characters and missions on real people and places, is it possible that there was once a real Q? Well, in this first episode, we are going to uncover that story. I'm going to be talking to Helen Fry about MI9 in the Second World War, from secret maps to friends of Houdini and millions of dinky devices hidden in strange places. This is the story of the escape and evasion inventions that helped to win the Second World War and the people who created them. Welcome to the show, Helen Fry. I had a weird dream last night, and I'm not joking. I dreamt I was in Egypt, and I was filming something or something, and I and I met Roger Moore on the beach, and 
we greeted each other. We said, hello, Mr. Bond. And I said, hello, <laughs> Mr. Bond. Because I think I, in my dream, I was the new James Bond and I was meeting Roger Moore and it was this handing over of the baton. And he was really nice in my dream. And so you woke up to find it wasn't reality. Were you disappointed? I was really disappointed. <laughs> and I was thinking, why did I just dream about Roger Moore? And then I realised because I was reading about MI9 and about you and about all your amazing research you've done into, into well, I guess the real cue is kind of why we're here. And I know that it's a bigger story than, than the real cue. And then I got thinking to myself, what is it about the letter Q? And I was thinking, because in America, like the top secret, top secret clearance is known as Q clearance, I believe, in I think certainly the Department of Energy. And then there's like yeah. QAnon and, and kind of other kind of, like, why is Q this kind of like slightly mysterious letter? Well, I don't actually know who came up with the idea of Q, but what we do know is that it masks reality. So in the wartime, you would have things like, well, the Q gadgets that well, I guess we'll be talking about. We'll, but, yeah, we're going to talk about that in a but bit. But you have Q ships, and they are ships which are sailing around potentially neutral countries, and they're really armed, and they're not a fisherman's trawler or whatever. They were known as Q ships. Oh, right. Yeah, and they were used in the war. How weird. So... There you go. So Q is this sort of letter of international letter of mystery and subterfuge and general kind of weirdness. Yeah, disguise, basically. They, they probably just thought, well, what's the weirdest letter in the alphabet? And then probably went, well, Q's a bit odd, isn't it? You've got to have a U after it and all that kind of... <laughs> Nobody's going to work <laughs> this kind of out. No. <laughs> OK, just let's clear something up. OK, my dream aside, he was really nice, Roger Moore, in my dream. And he was really tall. Well, I've never met him, so I wouldn't know. <laughs> no, me neither. But I have to say... He's the best Bond. He's the best Bond. And you I know reckon? that's a very... Contra well, I don't reckon. I know. And I know that's a very controversial statement. Well, a few years ago, I happened to be in a cafe on the edge of Hampstead Heath. And I thought I was seeing things when Daniel Craig walked past. But they were actually filming there, a very small scene. And oh, nobody really? knew, of course. Yeah. And I still... I'm going to stand by that I still think at the moment he's the best Bond. Wow. That's OK. The reason I say I, Roger Moore is the best Bond is because he's ridiculous. And for <laughs> me, the whole there is a kind of a bit like, it, you know, when like Batman. I like the old cartoon Batman, you know, with Adam West. It was so silly and, and funny. And, and Roger Moore was funny. And that was the whole point about Bond, wasn't it? I mean, it was So do you think then that um, Daniel Craig has become the casting of Bond now is too serious? Perhaps it's closer to reality. I don't know. I have to say, I'm a big fan of Daniel Craig, actually. I really, really liked Skyfall. I thought oh, that was a awesome. really, I, a really, really good movie. Just forget about the Bond franchise. You know, since Moonraker, which is yes. obviously the greatest of the Bond films. <laughs> 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 that or Octopussy. Skyfall was a big favourite of mine. Uh, but as a, actually, well, here's the as a kid, you know, for me, Des, the whole Desmond Llewellyn sequence of Q, and there'd always be a scene shoehorned in where they'd sort of tour the gadgets, and I'm like, this is the best bit, isn't it? The exploding pens and the heads that explode and all the kind of crazy stuff. Yeah, because you've almost got we've got Q saying, "Well, I've got my toolkit." And it's about to open something and you have no idea what's in there. And that's the magic, though, isn't it? For the audience, it's quite, it's quite a lot of suspense in that because you know it's going to be cool. Why are we so intrigued by that? We'll come on to the history of it in a moment, but I just kind of wonder why, what is it that's so appealing about that? Like, why is it such a thing that is, has made it through the franchise, you know? I wonder if it's to do with the fact that it borders on reality. It's sort of believable and yet 
part of us knows, or certainly when I grew up in the 70s and 80s watching the Bond films, that technology was unbelievable. It was it was not possible yeah. in a way. That's and it. And so yeah. that, it's the reality, isn't it? Whereas now, I suppose we probably believe anything's possible. <laughs> and, but I think also it's that juxtaposition of like ordinary objects, the pen that shoots acid or whatever it is or 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 the i don't know whatever i don't know i can't think off the top of my head now but it's the kind of ordinary objects that then become extraordinary and the sort of creativity and trying to imagine what situations where they could be used i don't know there's something quite satisfying yeah and maybe also the element of surprise you don't quite know what this gadget's going to do particularly the cars i mean they're great aren't they because suddenly things open up and you've got a load of guns coming out. Well, or... that's it. When you're a kid, it's like, of course I want an ejector seat in my car. And of course I want a button to press that makes an oil slick come out or my number plate revolve or a machine gun come out. I don't know all that kind of stuff. It's all good stuff. Hey, but the interesting thing, Helen, here's the thing. It's all based on true stuff. Tell us, I mean, where are we looking for, for that bit of history? Well, that's the extraordinary thing about all of this. We grow up on this magical, astonishing gadgetry of Bond. But when I started to look at the files of MI9, you're realising that actually Ian Fleming, author of all those Bond novels, has actually drawn on reality. So those files exist. They've now been declassified. So I was proud to be really the first one to to work extensively on telling a new history of MI9 from declassified files. I'll be honest. I mean, until I knew I was doing this, I had never heard of MI9. I'd heard of MI5 and SIS, yep. you know, MI6. Those were the two kind of, you know, military intelligence organisations that I knew of. I suppose somewhere in my mind, I thought, well, what happened to MI1, 2, 3, <laughs> 7, 8, 9? Like, had, I, don't, I don't quite know how it works, but MI9, I'd never heard of. Well, it went all the way from MI1 to MI19. Did it? And MI8, actually, is probably the one people know most, especially because Bletchley Park sort of falls in under that. Ah, and, I didn't know that. Yeah, and the Radio Security Service, which is slightly separate from Bletchley, but fed into it. So you've got that. And I found myself accidentally working on this astonishing branch of military intelligence, MI9, which actually, you're quite right, was as secret as MI5 and MI6. It, it was highly hush-hush. OK, well, tell us, we'll come on to gadgets in a moment, but just tell us what MI9, who were they, what did they do, where were they based, why are they still going, what's the deal? Well, I'll answer the last bit first. No, as far as we know, well, they were disbanded at the end of the war. Now, when there was a... As far as we know, <laughs> wink, wink. Well, it could be called something else. It could be called, I don't know, Q19 Department. Who knows? Oh, God, no. Q9 Department. But it was founded in December 1939 and headed by a fantastic commander, Brigadier Norman Crockett. So he's a war office army guy. And he has this whole psychology that we need our guys to come back to fight. So if they're bailed out in enemy territory or they're in prisoner of war camps, you've lost your manpower. He thought of ways to instill in our airmen and soldiers and personnel escape-mindedness. That's what he called it. So MI9 was formed... That's interesting. ...for the escape and evasion, but also to gain intelligence. So we might not have time to discuss that, but that was one of the major revelations of my book, actually, that it's not just about the wonderful escape things. But what I would say about that as well is he understood it's not easy 
to escape in enemy territory. You could give yourself away by the slightest detail. Yeah. And so he instigated this whole three-week training program that no one knows about all of our personnel, not just secret agents, SOE agents, commanders. Everybody got training in how to escape and evade. Well, everybody in the war, like everybody in the army in the yes. war. And so MI9 were the team that was in charge of like designing the training program and yes they used first world war veterans some of whom like johnny evans had escaped in the first world war they thought, ah we'll pick their brains and i'll give you one very funny example because of course the first mandate is do not be captured it's a three-week training course you, you're sitting in there with about 40 others there were thousands went through this training course at secret sites they're told do not be captured <laughs> which is quite funny, but they have to disguise themselves in enemy territory. So I'll give you just one example in France. They were told if, for example, you're a pilot, you've bailed out in France and you're trying to hide, acquire a beret and a string of onions. No, honestly, but that's that's <laughs> yes. like that scene in Blackadder where Baldrick's like, I have a cunning plan. You know, here's a escape kit with a painted wooden duck in case you're caught near a lake or, you know, and a, and a Robin Hood hat in case there's a fancy dress costume. <laughs> yeah, it, it's something about the British mindset, if we can talk about a British mindset. I think different cultures have mindsets. And that's captured so well by Ian Fleming in the Bond novels. That's perhaps what we like about it because it's a mirror of ourselves. That's really interesting. Actually, there's a thing in your book as well. There's a practical element to it as well, which which is worth pointing out, that training an airman in the war would cost £15,000 and take three months. And so yeah. there's a sort of financial reasons why. Look, if you get downed across enemy lines, we want you back working for us again, ASAP. Otherwise, we've wasted all our money and time. But it's not just the money. I mean, it is expensive. But if you think about it, if you start losing your airmen, they're in prison of war camps, or even they've died in action, of course, you're right, you can't train them in less than three months. The German Air Force could gain air superiority. That was the ultimate problem. So we had to keep our fighting, well, our airmen in particular, but all of them, because if you allow the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, to gain superiority, they can mount an invasion of Britain. Yeah. Germany could mount a successful invasion. That was the argument. So MI9, I mean, was it was it like super secret? Was it kind of yes. James Bond level secret? Like nobody, you know, did the Germans know about it? Did anyone outside the army know about it? Or? No, there was a, layers of secrecy. So, for example, it ran various escape lines across Europe, which I know we don't have time to talk about today. But there were thousands of men and women, Belgians, French, who helped on the escape lines. They didn't even know they were working for MI9. They just knew they were working for somebody in London. Actually, it was a site just outside London. But they just knew that they were working for the line, i.e. the escape line, and that somebody was sending them money and agents right. and equipment and that kind of thing. So very secret. Escape and evasion. That seems to be the... Um watchword of MI9. You said it was in a, a location just outside London. Just whereabouts are we? So this is about 20 miles outside London. It's at Wilton Park at Beaconsfield, which is in Buckinghamshire. Uh, and that building, well, everything's gone now. All the wartime buildings and the White House, the big mansion house, it's all gone. But it, it had one of the most important 
histories in espionage, escape and evasion intelligence of the wartime. When I think about escape and evasion in the wartime, you know what I'm going to say? I'm going to say all I can think about is the great escape and Donald Pleasance losing his eyesight, making tiny maps and uh, and fake passports and, and other things. Is that kind of it? Or, I mean, I always thought that was just fun and ridiculous, but no. sounds like it maybe not. Sounds no, like it's kind because of, that's the thing. Now the camp histories for each of the camps, yes, for Stalag Bluff 3, which of course was they tunnelled out of um, in March 1944, but the other camps, Colditz and some of the less well-known camps, they each had a camp history written at the end of the war. And it tells you how they had, they organised a secret forgery department to forge documents, wow. to make things. And going back to the psychology, MI9 trained them to think, if you're in captivity, keep mentally active and sane with activities so create things that might help you escape even if you don't ultimately use them so you have these whole mini departments under the noses of the germans creating all this stuff and they're nicking whatever they can in the camp it's a bit like play school (laughs) (laughs) one of my favorite stories of yours which i can't quite believe and it must be made up is that exactly as you're saying they they had to paint a white line around the camp and so they just painted a white line and then they sort of painted the white line out the front door and just ran off. That can't be true. Yeah, it's true. It's, it's in the training manual. The two <laughs> unknown prisoners, they're not named, <laughs> but they'd been they'd been naughty in the camp. They'd obviously been a bit insolent. So the Germans decided, oh, we're going to give them a, a chore. And the camp is huge. And they, in the August sun, baking heat, have to paint the white lines around the camp that needed repainting. And of course, the guards go past and they're kind of sneering at them. In the, and then a couple of days later, they paint out the gate because the gates are open. For whatever reason, at one point, they're painting and the guards are just looking the other way. And they paint round the corner and they run off and they get back to England. That's amazing. The other, the other story, and then we're, we're going to come on to Q and Gadgets in a moment. But the other story from The Great Escape, there's the scene in The Great Escape. I think, who is it? I can't remember which actor it is. And they board the train and they're having their tickets checked. And the ticket guard says um, something in French or, or German. I can't remember where they are now. This messy. Instead of, instead of replying in French, he replies in English by mistake. He says, oh, my pleasure or thank you very much. And then they know and then they get caught. And so that thing of like how you, when you said that they wear a beret and a string of onions, actually learning the mannerisms of German French people so you don't stand out is an actual yes. thing. And you'll love this one, Dallas. One of my favourite, all time favourite instructions if you're behind enemy lines and you're on the run, do not walk in a British way. <laughs> it's a bit like Monty <laughs> I never Python. walk in a British way. I don't know quite what that is, but. I can, I, one I don't can know, imagine. I still haven't worked it out. <laughs> Roger Moore walks in a very British way. He did in my dream. Uh, well, apparently that's night. how people can tell us apart because we walk in a very distinctive way. Who knows? But they're practising their walks, in obviously, on their three-week training course. I just, I think that's fabulous. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We're about to witness the first coronation at Westminster Abbey in 70 years. And Gone Medieval from History Hit is your perfect companion for the event. From the earliest English coronation records to what the royal regalia used in the ceremony means. From the surprising origins of the recognition part of the service to the lavish banquets that took place afterwards. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Dr Kat Jarman. And on Gone Medieval in April, we'll be exploring the medieval origins of this feast of pageantry. We'll try to pick out the key moments for you to watch and trace their origins back into the mists of time. We've got some great guests and fascinating topics to lift the lid on a moment when, let's face it, people all around the world will have gone medieval. Subscribe and follow Gone Medieval from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. So you are told, don't get caught. And if you do get caught, here's how to escape and evade. Right, let's talk about Q. So Q, obviously, um, Desmond Llewellyn and I was growing up and in the Bond film, he designs all Bond's gadgets in order for him to escape and evade, presumably, and to you know do things. And they're always made out of kind of ordinary things. So where does Q come from? Where does that character come from? And it's based in reality, it comes from MI9. It does. It's absolutely rooted in MI9. There were two characters... Christopher Clayton Hutton, who was the kind of inventor, and Charles Fraser Smith, who procured and got all the materials and then dispatched the items. So Q is clearly a mix of these two characters. But I think the main one... Were they called Q in reality? Was that actually a a sort of code name? No, there's no evidence that they were called... It was certainly not in the declassified files. Christopher Clayton Hutton was your typical inventor kind of bit of a, a boffin that could think outside the box how are you going to hide miniature compasses in ordinary objects and clutty was fantastic because he was that eccentric inventor that would find really obscure ways to do that and mask it in ordinary objects what kind of objects take us through some of the some of the things we're talking about are there exploding pens 
in any of them. <laughs> there are assassin's <laughs> okay. pens. There are pens which really? open up and you've got a little knife in them. Yes. One of my female wow. agents had one of those. It's a, oh, wow. Crikey. So there's, there's some pretty deadly stuff there, but there's also some ordinary useful stuff. One of the most useful are the miniature compasses. And they are no bigger than the size of, well, my thumb, really. My thumb's quite small. They are extraordinary if you see one in real life. So the compasses would help you with direction you could use with escape maps. And they were hidden behind the top button of a service person's uniform. And Clutty was really good at this because he realised the Germans, we must make sure the Germans don't find this. So to access the compass, you unscrew the back of the button counterintuitively the wrong way. Oh, wow. So you so, do so... that so the Germans okay. aren't going to find this. I mean, the Germans found some items that were smuggled into the camps, but not the button compasses. And the of the miniature compasses, we're talking about mass-scale cue gadgets here. Miniature compasses alone, 1.4 million were manufactured for MI9. Why? Okay, that's really interesting. Like, where where did they all end up? Like, can you find them? If I went to a military uniform shop and found a second, an airman's uniform from that period and twiddled with the button, would I find a miniature compass hidden in the top button? You might, actually. I've never tried it. Some of our museums have examples. The Military Intelligence Museum in Bedfordshire, the RAF Museum at Hendon, they all have examples of these, and there are, of course, other places. But they are extraordinary because they are so... When you talk about miniature, they are so, so tiny. But they could be hidden in anything then, you see... Uh, you can hide them in the back of a shaving brush. So if if your prisoner's got his shaving kit, the Germans allowed them to keep their shaving kit. But again, you unscrew it the wrong way around. A bit like in Jurassic Park. Do you remember when they have the shaving can and he unscrews it? Oh, that's where it's come from, isn't it? Yeah, maybe <laughs> that. And they find the, the dinosaur eggs. I can't remember what it was. Dinosaur something. Dinosaur DNA. Uh, anyway, sorry. Yeah, so inside shaving brushes. See, I like that. That makes me really happy that that actually is a thing. Yeah, and they're hiding well, everything, anywhere that you can hide little jiggly saws, the nice. grots, which of course they use for, you Grossing. know. Yeah, special agents. Yeah, pretty lethal stuff. So, so okay, so we've got things like tools, for example. Okay, you're talking about grotting wires, wires which you can also sort of cut things. I mean, where are they going to be? Where are you going to hide something like that? So compasses and buttons, I can imagine. Yes, yeah, shoelaces. What would be in a shoelace? Oh, I see. That So that would be a garrotting wire. wire. The wire, yes. Oh, wow. And the little saws, which again, some of them are miniature, you can hide them just in a very slim part in a game, like in, well, it's with not the Monopoly games for that, but in a chess set, if you've got a kind of wooden chess set, it might have secret compartments. So all this stuff was being manufactured on a mass scale. So prisoners were allowed to receive parcels with games and activities. Right. That's what I was going to ask next. It's like, well, what are they doing playing chess? Well, they're allowed to, of course. They're allowed to receive blankets. They're allowed to see. So Brigadier Norman Crockett is saying to Clutty, Christopher Clayton Hutton, Mm. who's inventing this stuff, We've got the series of games. We've got Waddingtons who have who have agreed to manufacture these special Monopoly sets, dominoes. Dominoes was quite obvious, but they didn't use that very often. What would you put in a domino? I can't because they're not very hollow dominoes. So what would you? What could you hide? You could hide um, secret messages, a little bit of ink. They would line yeah. a chess set. You'll love this one. The knight on the chess set. You unscrew the head the wrong way, and inside it's hollow. It's lined. 
and they would actually smuggle ink in there. That's great. <laughs> That's <laughs> as long as you don't spill it when you undo the head. I'm amazed that why do we not know about all this stuff? I mean, I didn't know about any of this. I mean, I knew, I knew it from like movies and stuff, but I didn't realise it was real. And Monopoly, you said as well. What happens in what happens in Monopoly? Yeah, well, if anyone listening's got an MI nine Monopoly board, they're very valuable. So they could before it's completed, they can sort of hide a, a forged document or papers very slim in the board itself and to the eye obviously you can't have it too thick because the Germans think that doesn't look right but it's finding any ways whatsoever and the little pieces I think I read I did read somewhere that they use those occasionally yeah they're, they're just so so miniature and in the end Clutty had designed things such that you could fold use tissue paper a sort of form of tissue paper which he got initially from Japan and then that could be folded so, so tiny and in the back of pencils, in anything. And so all the, all the soldiers who are getting this stuff would know where it is. It's like, crikey, OK, we've got the Monopoly, you know, we've got the chess set, let's turn the head of the of the night. Uh, maps was the other thing as well you, you, you write about. The, the, yes. I mean, so maps are obviously very important if you're going to escape. How are maps produced in this way? Again, this is quite magical and down to Clutty again because he was tasked by Norman Crockett to produce these escape maps and if you print on, you've got ordinary paper, they rustle. The Germans, are the first thing they're going to take off, they kind of do a search. So he thinks of printing on silk and if you print on silk, it just runs. Yeah. So he's yeah, yeah. in his little shed at the end of Wilson Park mixing and using all kinds of chemicals to work out how's the best way to print on silk. And he adds pectin. He comes up with the idea of pectin, which is traditionally used in jam. And that stops it running. So you can print on... And presumably silk's great because it doesn't rustle. (laughs) And you can fold it up quite nicely. But also what what is so extraordinary about this is that it's printed in colour, a different map on each side... And extraordinarily, no blurring of the lines. It looks like it's just an ordinary printed map, but instead of being on paper, it's on silk. And for me, when I first saw one of these maps, I couldn't believe the level of detail that you're able to print. And again, this is a mass production. We're talking about, we know officially, 1.6 million maps MI9. You know, when we think about producing things for the war effort in the 1940s, we think about Spitfires and we think about tanks and that kind of stuff. Like, was I mean, if they're printing millions of these maps, were they being done in factories? I mean, and how did they keep it secret? We still don't totally know, but we know that uh, Blunts in Old Kent Road were were on board with things, Waddingtons, but they would have a secret kind of part of one of their factories or buildings. And the staff, sometimes, I also got a sense during my research that some of the people that were packing this stuff may not have known what its ultimate destination was. So we also don't know exactly where everything was produced because the paper trail is not there. It was almost word of mouth. Fraser Smith would just ring up a particular contact and say, "Okay, we need X amount of this. Can you get it by the end of next week? Can you get it by tomorrow? Whatever. So we still don't have the paper trail exactly on MI9's operations in this respect. Do we have any in your research? Have you found other are there any numbers of, of like servicemen and women who were captured and escaped because of this? I'm, I'm just trying to get yes. a sense of how effective all this stuff was. 
Yes, at the end of the wall, there's a table. I don't know for which each service, because I don't hold those figures in my head. But the grand total is that MI9 rescued over 35,000 Allied personnel. That's not an insignificant <laughs> number. That's a, that that is that's pretty good. So from so this little secret organisation got got thirty five thousand people back out of. I mean, these are all people not necessarily all in POW camps, but no. you know, getting them back across enemy lines and back into service. Well, directly, their direct help. So this is not including those that may have just found their way out on their own in the early days. So this is direct help from MI9. And if we think the the personnel who work for MI9, again, there are no exact lists. There's an early list, but there's probably no more than about 50 people. So they've got this massive operation, highly top secret. I'm not talking about escape lines and there were thousands working on escape lines. But if we think of this little MI9 headquarters, certainly no more than 50 men and women with this vast rescue operation. And it was something you could just get a sense in the files at the end of the war, this immense sense of pride, but it was all top secret. And it was only released a few years ago. That's fascinating. And let, can I just ask you about this 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 chap, Clutty? Who, yeah. Are we calling Clutty, Mr Clutty, the real Q? He's the character that Fleming kind of based... The Q character on and and who who was he and where did he come from and what was his background? So he'd actually fought in the First World War. He'd been a pilot and he was a journalist during the interwar years. And in the right. Second World War, he's too old to enlist in fighting forces, but he receives his call up papers quite early. And he had this interview at the War Office, and I love this story because the guy has obviously had a long day interviewing people coming in and out in and out and he's getting quite weary and it's about half past five in the evening we know that from the files and Cutty walks in and the guy just looks at him and says tell me something about yourself and Cutty says oh I'm really interested in illusionism escapeology in fact I'm a friend of Houdini the famous escapologist and I no gave him way. a challenge yeah <laughs> and so the man's instantly kind of woken up and literally, he, his chair goes back, he stands up and he says to Clutty, I've got just the man who needs to meet you. And that is Brigadier Norman Crockett. So that's how Clutty found himself in front of Norman Crockett. And Norman Crockett said to him, well, if you're interested in all this stuff, can you do something for me? Do you think you can hide things in ordinary gadgets, ordinary household items? And, and he thinks up. It's not Norman Crockett, it's Clutty who says, right, where can we hide a button compass? Where can we do this? He's just a genius, really. But he did have health issues as a result of that. There was a lot of pressure on him. A lot of lives needed to be saved. Yeah. It's really interesting that that all of that, all that kind of inspiration comes from the world of illusion and magic. Which is something I, I, I've kind of I've been involved in a little bit in my life. Uh, when I was younger, I used to do close-up magic. And it is all, well, without giving too much away, <laughs> there is a, quite a lot of gimmickry in it in terms of making things and the manufacture of things that will deceive and things that look ordinary, which perhaps aren't quite so ordinary. And so th that totally makes sense, how, how you go from that to helping the war effort. Well, you, you kind of wonder what would have happened that day Number one, if Clutty had given a different answer, oh, I'd fought in the First World War, I can't fight anymore, I've got a dodgy leg or whatever. Yeah. What if he hadn't said about his hobbies? 
it's just that it's almost that chance, and that happens quite a lot in wartime, doesn't it? That chance encounter, which we're now sounding like James Bond ourselves, aren't we? Chance well, encounters. no, but you're, you're right. It's like it's like he goes for an interview, and and that line of conversation comes up, and there and there we have it. And from that, obviously, we have everything that happened in the war, evasion and escape in the war, but also Bond movies and also <laughs> Donald Pleasance in The Great Escape, who I guess must be must have been based on Clutty as well. Yeah, well, when I saw The Great Escape film, when I watched it after I'd worked on the MI9 camp files, it is so close to reality. They haven't needed to have much creative licence, actually. I, I think for me that was really astonishing. I wasn't expecting to find, I thought there'd be quite a lot of creative license. It's the same with some of the escapes from Colditz. They are so close. They didn't need to reinvent. They just were able to work on on that. Can I ask, you know, you've been doing all this research and this is obviously stuff that's been declassified relatively recently, but I mean, you don't have to answer this. You can just wink, wink, wink for <laughs> once for yes and twice for no. Does MI9... Is it still going? Like, I mean, do people, are we still making? Well, I don't do the sort of contemporary stuff uh, or even near history. But what I did discover during my MR9 uh, research was a file on the Korean War. And again, there there are MI9 type gadgets used there. What I do know is that MI9 was disbanded at the end of the war. But the new head of MI9 was Sam Derry, an escaper himself, a bit of a James Bond character. Mm. And he was tasked by Churchill to go on and found the territorial SAS. And of oh, course, right. they didn't like too much attention. No. So we don't talk about They but were that's all based I know. out in the desert, weren't they? I think I, I, there was an interesting drama about the SAS recently, a sort of fictionalised series about the SAS. What was it called? Who Dare? Not Who Dare? No, Dirt SAS wins, Rogue Heroes. SAS Rogue Heroes. I enjoyed that series. I thought it was pretty good. I didn't know anything about the SAS. Uh, well, I obviously knew who but they were. Sam but Sam Derry actually founded the Territorials, which sort of <clears throat> was slightly different from those founded in that hotel in Cairo in 1941. But it, it is interesting, that whole daring do that the legacy of the war. One thing I would like to add, actually, because we've been talking about Bond and, and Fleming, I don't think people quite realise that Ian Fleming was actually involved with MI9. He was naval intelligence, but MI9 had all three services, Army, Air and Navy intelligence involved. And that's why Fleming knows so much about MI9 and Q gadgets. That's really interesting. So he, this isn't just fictionalised. This is, you know, very much ba- based in reality. And it's interesting as well, because presumably as technology changes, then the gadgets are going to change. I mean, obviously, you wouldn't have been able to miniaturise a, a camera and stick it in a pen back in back in the Second World War. But you can certainly do that now and microphones and, <laughs> you know, and everything else. Yeah, absolutely. And I think whoever... The Q is today, and I read something not so long ago that apparently Q is actually a woman today. But whether that's true or not, wait, how do you mean today? As in the real, a real person yes. who does all this? Uh, it's in, really? in one of the newspaper articles. Yeah, not so long ago. I don't think I've made this. But it's up. not. But not MI nine. But not MI nine. Because are we saying MI nine doesn't exist anymore? Or you said it was disbanded, but officially disbanded. Okay. I mean, it may, it may have reformed under a new name. I, I don't know. But I read something, I think it was in connection with women and spies and MI6, that apparently the current day Q is a woman. But it may be that she just retired. I'm not sure. 
Oh, it's fascinating. Uh, let's see, we love all this. We love secret stuff. The more secret it is, the more we know, the more we want to know. I'm also fascinated because, you know, MI5, obviously, and the MI6 building, you know, on the, on the south bank of at Vauxhall there. It's like, look, here's our intelligence service. But you said they were like MI1 to MI19. I'm like worried about what the other ones are doing. They're, they're not really getting, like, what else happens? It's like, what, MI17, what do they do? Are they like... You can Google each of them. They're not all... Can yeah, you? yeah, they're okay. not all existing anymore. Um, MI1, it started off as MI1A, B and C. And actually it was a branch MI1H even that functioned in the beginning of World War Two from the Tower of London. But MI1B traces forward to what is today GCHQ. Right, okay. So they have all these branches of military intelligence that kind of morph into different roles. Into other things. Oh, that's interesting. So it's GCHQ. Again, which is not very secret anymore. I always used to think GCHQ, very secret, but they have sort of like Twitter handles and they do lectures and things. Yeah, far more open. And of course, today we know the heads of those agencies. But when I started my research... Yeah, those agencies didn't officially exist. I mean, everybody knew they did because there's a building. I love that MI6 building. I think it's my favourite all time. It's so Bond, isn't it? Well, here's a, I'll tell you a story. I got arrested there once. You got arrested? Well, not arrested. I, I got, well, I got stopped and searched. And um, I was fil- I used to present a TV show called The Gadget Show. And we did an episode on spy gadgets. There you go. And we thought, okay, well, let's shoot it. Well, well I'm going to test out some spy gadgets. And I've got to get from... This point in central London to the MI6 built or MI... Is it the MI5 building or MI6 building? You know, I can't remember. Look, the iconic one that's blown up with Judy Dench that one. watching That Which one's that? Bridge. Is that MI5? That's the MI6, MI6 building. So I had to get there. Yes. But anyway, because I was so good at doing my spy gadgets and I had to avoid detection, the other people, presenters were trying to find me and I had to get from A to B to the... And that was where we were going to end up. I alerted the police. The police became suspicious by, I don't know how, like the way I was moving, the way I was walking. I, I don't know what it was, but I got as far as the bridge and then suddenly... Like two massive police vans, like ran, like stopped and like full on. And these guys got out like proper with guns. And and I was like grabbed and I'm like, what are you doing? Who are you? Why are you? And it was like, I'm just filming the gadget show. Don't you recognise me from TV? It's like. (laughs) (laughs) Don't you know who I am? As I pull off my mask. So that. I should be worried by the fact I'm on your programme. Maybe, probably. Oh, Honestly, yes. it was really, but then, I mean, it kind of, it became a sort of bit of a joke and they laughed and they were like, oh, we're sorry. But one wrong move, they could well have shot you, actually. There's no, you know, it's a national security. We can't, we can't have it compromised. Yeah. Anyway, they, they realised that what was going on, because there was a, <laughs> a huge film crew, well, not, you know, there was a man with a camera like, okay, fair enough. Carry on, sir, they said, and, and had a chuckle. Uh, but there you go. Anyway, so that was my little story. Hey, listen, Helen, I'll let you go. Uh, but thank you so much for dropping by. I found this absolutely fascinating. And just if people want to find out a little bit more about this, your book is called... MI9. 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 So we can learn, you can much more about it there. But also, if I want to go and see some of this stuff, is there a way I can find, have a look at some of these proto spy gadgets from the Second World War, buttons with compasses in and that kind of thing? Yes, they've got some of the Military Intelligence Museum, which is at Chicksands in Bedfordshire. And although it's behind the wire, you can email them. And it's free to go in, but you have to obviously arrange an appointment. And then also, a bit easier to get into, of course, is the RAF Museum at Hendon. I'm not sure I love if they've that got museum. 
Yeah, I don't know if they've got any on display. And the Imperial War Museum certainly have them, but again, they've just changed their Secret Service exhibition. So, but these there are places with these items. Great. My advice as a final parting gift, dear listener, is don't hang around the MI6 building wearing a beret and a string of onions (laughs) because you may attract attention and terrible things might happen. Helen, a pleasure. Thank you very much for telling us such wonderful stories. And uh, your book is terrific. Thank you. And pleasure. So there we go. Check your room for hidden listening devices. Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget, there will be more instalments in our Inventing Bond miniseries throughout April. If you've enjoyed this, don't forget to tell all your friends and family and spy masters and whoever. And don't forget that this podcast will self-destruct in 10 seconds. Oh no, wait, that's something else. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes, or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code Patented at the checkout, you get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.